some explanation to illuminate uh, what we read in Psalm 16. So please do open your Bibles and follow along as I read Acts chapter 2. I will start at verse 14 and read through the 36th verse. Acts chapter 2. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you, and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above, and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness, and the moon to blood, before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did, him, did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life, and you will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I, say, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Thus ends the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. Let's pray. Our Lord God, we thank you that you have given us your word. Lord, speak through your servant this morning. Make me decrease that you may increase. Lord, we ask that you grant us all wisdom and understanding that we can apply this instruction to our lives. Father, open our eyes that we might see wonderful things in your law. 
and make us not only hearers of the word, but, but doers of it as well. Uh, point us to your throne of grace, Lord, that we may see more of Christ. In everything, Lord, would you be glorified. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, our sermon text this morning, again, Psalm 16. So please do follow along in your Bibles. Um, why study Psalm 16? Well, of course, it's part of the Word of God and so useful for, for teaching and training in righteousness. Um, but uh, there's actually even more reasons. Um, number one, uh, we've been studying with the youth James, the book of James. And uh, right away in verse 2 of James chapter 1, he says, uh, Count it all, my, all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. And I don't know if I've followed the Lord's command here uh, to have joy in trials. Um, it's definitely not my first response, and it's not the natural response that we have. Um, I also think about our Westminster Shorter Catechism, question number one. Um, the question is, what is the chief end of man? And the answer is, man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. It seems like joy is a pretty important thing if it's half of our chief end. Um, we, in, over the last few weeks, have been dealing with this uh, coronavirus crisis. Uh, many of you are out there risking your health and your lives um, in essential jobs and, and healthcare workers and others. Um, many of you have, may have been furloughed or laid off. Um, it's impacted us in many ways, and the death toll continues to rise every day. Um, how can we live in the midst of all of this and still have joy? Um, recent events definitely point us to depend on God even more, and we grieve with those who grieve. But is there any joy to be found? Uh, moreover, um, for the last more than a month, we've been deprived of some of the means of grace that God uses to bring us joy. Um, the Lord's Supper, worshiping together in person with brothers and sisters in Christ, fellowshipping together, uh, meetings of Bible studies, prayer groups, um, as well, um, I'll confess, there are some selfish, re selfish reasons for studying Psalm 16. Um, for myself, finding joy in the last few weeks has been a struggle. Uh, but I'm sure I'm not alone. So if you are now or have been um, in a season similar to mine, my prayer is that Psalm 16 might point you back to joy in our Lord Jesus Christ. Um, as we study Psalm 16, we'll approach it in uh, three parts. First, I'll look at the first four verses as we see David's request for preservation. Second, in verses 5 through 8, we will see a reminder of God's goodness. And finally, in verses 9 through 11, we will rejoice in the Lord with David. So Psalm 16, a miktem of David. This is a psalm of David, King David, um, the man who is known to be a man after God's own heart. Um, the psalm begins with a petition right away in verse 1. Protect me, O God. Um, could mean guard me, protect me. From what? Um, we'll learn more as we read into the psalm. Uh, but clearly David feels some insecurity, some precariousness, uh, perhaps danger from an enemy. The exact threat he faces is not made clear, but death may be near. So he calls out to God. He calls out, preserve me, O God. Um, don't let this be the end of my life or our relationship. Um, David's prayer begins the way many of ours do, um, in a time of trial, um, when we've come to the end of ourselves and uh, there's nothing else for us to do. We've come face to face with our inadequacy, our powerlessness. Where do we turn? 
And there's only one place to turn, and David knew it. It's to turn to God himself, the one who has the power to act, to change the circumstances, and to save. Um, So we, like David, should be quick to turn to God, recognize our weakness, and call out to him, our God who hears our prayers, and find our refuge in him. Um, Almost immediately, David moves from his desperate plea to declaring and exulting in who God is. What follows his quick petition there are the justification and grounds for his plea. Um, He says God is his refuge. Think of David seeking refuge in the caves um, of the mountainside as he was being pursued by Saul. Um, David here in verse 1 finds refuge in, in God himself, pleading with God, preserve me because God is his refuge. This pattern continues over the next couple of verses with David declaring who and what God is to him, strengthening his hope that God would, in, would indeed preserve him. In verse 2, why can David, David be confident in the Lord's protection? He confesses that the Lord Jehovah, the one true God who revealed himself to Moses in the burning bush, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, this God is his Lord. The Hebrew word here used is is Adonai, meaning master, someone having power, authority, or influence, a ruler. He goes on to say in verse 2, he has no good apart from God. Implied then is that any blessing that he has, or good that he does have, was given to him by God. Um, He acknowledges God as the source of everything good. Um, James 1, 17 Um, tells us this. This is James chapter 1, verse 17. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. This simple statement in Psalm 16, verse 2, is David's way of saying that his refuge, his Redeemer and Lord, is his supreme treasure, and nothing else compares. The problem is that this is easy to forget. It's easy to fool ourselves into thinking that we earned the good things we have or that we've done something to deserve the things that we have. But the change of focus that uh, David has here, this change of perspective, um, is just what we need. We need to remind ourselves, apart from you, God, I have nothing. Um, When I finish here, we're going to sing a hymn that's probably familiar to many of you. It's, My Hope is Built on Nothing Less. The lyrics are by Edward Mote. He was um, not raised in the church, but became a Christian and was was baptized at about 18 years old. And he uh, became a carpenter in in London in the early 1800s. He opened his own cabinet shop. And one day he went to work and decided he was going to write a hymn. And uh, this is the one that he wrote and he became known for, the one we're going to sing. Let me read verse 2 to you and uh, the chorus. When darkness veils his lovely face, I rest upon unchanging grace. In every rough and stormy gale, my anchor holds within the veil. On Christ, the solid rock, I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. This hymn parallels what we've seen in David's psalm so far, starting with darkness, but quickly moving and resting in God's refuge. God is our solid rock. So verses 1 and 2 focus on David's relationship with God. But in verse 3, we quickly see that the focus turns from turns to David's relationship with the saints in the land, God's chosen people who are set apart for him. 
Um, David calls them the excellent ones. They are a delight to him. James Boyce, in commenting on this verse, says this, This is a practical matter, for it is a way by which we can measure our relationship with the Lord. Do you love other Christians? Do you find it good and rewarding to be with them? Those who love the Lord will love the company of those who also love him. And those who find their good in him will also find good in those who likewise seek him. Um, This is an error we see too often today, that people claim to follow Jesus, but don't feel the need to be a part of a church. Or worse, openly criticize the church and oppose organized religion. Um, I am very blessed to be a member of Hope Presbyterian Church, and I thank each person that I have come to know over the last 14 years um, for your encouragement to me, your prayers for me, and um, each of you is is a delight to me. Um, I certainly don't put myself on David's level, uh, but David here delighted in the saints despite their failings and imperfections. In fact, one of David's um, outstanding qualities was his love and mercy toward people, many of whom did not deserve it. We remember he twice spared Saul, who was hunting him down to murder him. Um, When Saul died, David was quick to forgive Abner, the the commander of Saul's army. Um, And when Joab murdered Abner, David led everyone who was with him in tearing their clothes and and weeping, putting on sackcloths. So David loved and delighted in God's people. He had mercy on them. He demonstrated God's character, um, pointing us ahead to Christ, that... uh, Christ delights in the saints so much that he would pay for, his, pay for our sins on the cross. Now we turn from the excellent saints in verse 3 to those who pursue other gods. In verse 4, David says the sorrow of those who run after other gods will be multiplied. This multiplying of sorrows is consistent with what we see in Genesis chapter 3 in the fall. Um, part of the curse of Adam and Eve's sin is uh, recorded for us in Genesis chapter 3, verse 16. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. So one of the consequences of sin in Genesis was a multiplication of pain. Here, the curse of idolatry um, results in a multiplication of sorrow a word closely related to pain in Genesis 3. Um, Sin promises some benefit, some uh, pleasure, some joy, some gratification. Just as the serpent in in Genesis 3 convinced Eve that God was withholding something good from her, so we can be fooled into thinking there is going to be good found apart from our God himself. This is a pattern we see repeated again and again in Scripture. Rather than the benefit it promises, Idolatry and sin leads to sorrow and pain. David recognized this truth and vowed that he would not bow down in worship to false gods. Indeed, he wouldn't even give them the dignity of saying their names. This should prompt us to consider how um, we think about other gods. The idolatry that we see today is not often uh, bowing down to idols or making blood sacrifices, though When you dig down to the root of it, it's amazing how little things have changed. Um, But we need to be guarded then about the company we keep, the entertainment that we allow to come into our lives, the the worldview that we surround ourselves with. Uh, But unfortunately, we battle an enemy that's not only outside of us, but actually is deeply rooted in our sinful nature. There's the famous quote 
Um, It says, the human heart is a perpetual factory of idols. It's attributed to John Calvin. And uh, biographer T.H.L. Parker wrote concerning Calvin, although it has become popular in many churches for the pastor to strive to pour out his heart before his congregation, such was not Calvin's aim in his preaching, for he had offered his heart to God alone. As a result, Calvin Calvin did not think it was profitable to share the ever-changing passions of his own heart, but to proclaim the heart of God in his never-changing word. Calvin was not concerned that his congregants behold him, but that they behold the Lord. So Calvin, rather than expound on the passions of his heart, desired to learn and apply and preach the word of God. And similarly, we need to check our own heart's passions and Um, devote ourselves to our Lord alone. This is why in Psalm 16, David resolves to have no part of idolatry. He will not associate with it or even speak of the names of those who have false gods. So as is true with many of the Psalms, these first four verses give us a pattern for our own prayers. Um, We can cry out to God when we meet trials and struggles. And then we can pray to God, our refuge, our sovereign, and our supreme treasure. And we can repent and turn away from our sin, turning to the people of God, our brothers and sisters in Christ, to point us back to our Lord. So following his request for preservation in these first four verses, David celebrates several reminders of God's goodness. In verse 5, the Lord, Yahweh, is David's chosen portion and his cup. Here David exults in the Lord again, as he did in verse 2. If he could have anything at all, he would choose the Lord himself. In the second half of verse 5, he says, The Lord holds his lot. Whatever, Whatever happens to David is not a matter of chance. It's not random. The circumstances of his life and our lives indeed are held in the very hand of God. God decides it, and he's sovereign over everything. In verse 6, the theme continues. He says, The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. Verses 5 and 6 hearken back to the division of the land as Joshua brought the people of Israel into the promised land. They cast lots to determine which group would occupy each portion of the land. But here, David's joy um, goes beyond just the land to something even greater, even better. Um, In Joshua, not every Israelite received an inheritance in the land. Um, God told Aaron and the priests in Numbers chapter 18, verse 20. Numbers chapter 18, verse 20, he says this, And the Lord said to Aaron, You shall have no inheritance in their land, neither shall you have any portion among them. I am your portion and your inheritance among the people of Israel. And here in Psalm 16, David reminds us that the priests actually got the better better deal. Um, Even the even better news, though, is that uh, this is open not just to the priests and the Levites, but God has made us to be a royal priesthood, and uh, we have access to this same promise. Um, Alexander McLaren writes that every godly man has the same possession and the same prohibitions as the priests had. Like them, he is landless. And instead of estates, he has Jehovah. As Christians, we who are united to Christ, we are co-heirs with Christ. In his letter to the Ephesians, Paul prays for his uh, Ephesian brothers and sisters. 
um, in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 18. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. This promised land is a picture of God's goodness to his people, but we are parties to an even better covenant. Our inheritance is not just a land flowing with milk and honey, but God himself is our portion, our cup, our pleasant place, and our beautiful inheritance. He continues in verse 7, I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. The false gods of the nations could not give the counsel that David receives from his Lord. Um, When David was faced with death, he sought the counsel of the Lord. David was in danger, and God's counsel showed him a way of escape. Counsel is no good if uh, we don't heed the advice. So clearly, obedience was necessary. David had to not only hear God's direction, but put it into practice. So this counsel leads to, in verse 7, In the night also my heart instructs me. We know from Scripture and from experience that our own hearts can be a dangerous source of instruction. So how can David here rely on it? The psalmist in uh, Psalm 119, Psalm 119, verse 11, tells us this. I have stored up, my, stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. So David treasured God's counsel to him. He, he had meditated on it. He had allowed it to transform his mind. He had stored it up in his heart such that God's word sustained him, even in the trials and here in the night. Um, only when our hearts are soaked in God's word can they be trusted to instruct us rightly. Continuing in verse 8 of Psalm 16, I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. David sought to be in the Lord's presence, and he set him at his right hand. Here, the right hand is the place of a protector or guard. And amazingly, David says, I will not be shaken. What a dramatic turn from verse 1 when he says, Preserve me, O God, to now saying, I will not be shaken. How is this possible in just seven or eight verses? John Piper put it this way. Because he has declared and exulted in what God is for him as a refuge, sovereign, treasure, and counselor, because he has put this God before him and taken hold of him and set him, so to speak, at his right hand, therefore his petition, preserve me, O God, has become his unshakable confidence. I will not be shaken. I will be preserved. And here again, Psalm 16 serves as a model for our own prayers. God knows our hearts and our innermost thoughts. We, so nothing we pray is new to God. But one of the benefits of prayer um, and praying scriptural prayers based on God's word and based on the truth of the gospel is that our prayers and meditation is a reminder and encouragement to our own souls. Praying this way puts things into perspective. We remember Christ's benefits. Uh, Our worldly problems shrink when we see the the size and the goodness of our God and recall his past faithfulness. Prayer can bring us from fear to security and from anxiety to confidence that our Lord will work all things for good. So we must preach the gospel to ourselves every day, reminding ourselves of the truth of God's character and his goodness to us. So finally, after these reminders of God's goodness, we have a culmination 
of rejoicing in God in verses 9 through 11. Verse 9 begins, therefore. And we all learn that uh, if you see therefore in scripture, you should ask, what's the therefore? Therefore. So based on what he said in verse 8 and prior, this is the result. Um, We've seen a progression from a desperation for God's protection through God's sovereignty um, to David's um, confidence. Therefore, David's heart is glad and his whole being rejoices. Um, Here, David enjoys the fruit of faith. He trusts in his sovereign Lord who secures and sanctifies him. And so his heart is gladdened and his whole being rejoices. In verse 10, David has confidence that God will save him, both body and soul. Um, He understands that God is in control of both the spiritual and the physical realms. David can have joy because God himself will give him victory over the grave. David has confidence that all God has been for him, all the testimony of God's goodness and faithfulness and protection, these things will never fail. The Lord will not abandon him to Sheol, the place of death. Psalm 16 culminates in one of the most beautiful statements of faith in all of Scripture. Verse 11 says, You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Life is pictured here as a path, a journey. And David trusts God not only, not only for deliverance from death, but guidance for his own life. The Lord here gives counsel in verse 7, now makes known the path of life through his word. Furthermore, David has fullness of joy in God's presence. Not some joy, not just a little bit, not momentary joy, fullness of joy. Indeed, pleasure forevermore. This is the logic of faith that we see in Psalm 16. Since God had preserved him and blessed him in this life, then God, who does not change, would surely keep him and bless him in the life to come. David had a hope beyond the grave that he would have fullness of joy and eternal pleasure in God's presence. Yet, though Psalm 16 has brought us on an amazing journey from fear to assurance and from uncertainty to confidence, it also presents one big question. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, God had told David that he would die. Um, God, as he spoke to, to David through the prophet Nathan, said this, 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 12. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So David knew, God had told him, that he would die. So how then can he say that his flesh would not see corruption? And uh, the passage we read in Acts chapter 2, the Apostle Peter addresses this issue in his sermon at Pentecost. Starting at verse 29, I want to read again um, through verse 31 in Acts chapter 2. Starting at verse 29. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. 
Peter tells us that in this last portion of Psalm 16 um, is prophetic. And he speaks of the resurrection of Christ. And in verse 8, yes, David set the Lord before him, but he certainly was not perfect at that. But we, we learn in Acts that Jesus Christ did set the Lord always before him. And Jesus was not shaken because the Father was at his right hand. In verses 9 and 10, Jesus was forsaken as he bore the penalty for sin, but his soul was not abandoned. Jesus was raised on the third day. His flesh did not see corruption or decay. In verse 11, Jesus followed a bitter and difficult path to bring life to all who receive him and, and believe in him. And today, Jesus reigns at the right hand of the Father, and being one with him, he has fullness of joy and pleasure forevermore. So exactly how David would, how God would save David and do everything that he asked in Psalm 16 was probably not completely clear to him, but it found its fulfillment in Christ. And thanks to God's word through Peter, the mystery of all of this is revealed and made clear to us today. There is fullness of joy in the presence of God. We, we have access to this presence through Jesus Christ, our Lord. One last scripture reference for you, Romans chapter 8, a beautiful chapter about uh, our assurance in the Lord, but Romans chapter 8, verse 11 says this, If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So that is the confidence that David had um, in Psalm 16, and it's the confidence that we can have. The souls of we who have faith in Christ Jesus will not be abandoned. God is our refuge and our chosen portion and our cup. He gives us counsel and will guard us and protect us. And we have eternal life and everlasting joy in his presence through Christ Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit. I told you when I first got up here that I've sensed a need for joy in my life lately. Um, I had become somewhat content with the miniature joys and the fleeting pleasures the world has to offer. And I knew I needed and continue to need to seek true and lasting joy. So I turned to Psalm 16. And where did Psalm 16 lead me? Where did it lead me? Um, it led me directly to Christ. True joy is found in Christ Jesus our Lord. There is no ultimate joy to be found but what is found in him. Um, John Piper says that the theme, the main point of Psalm 16 is this. God will bring you body and soul through life and death to full and everlasting pleasure if he is your safest refuge, your supreme treasure, and your sovereign Lord and your trusted counselor. Contained therein is a helpful assessment to see if the spirit who raised Jesus from the dead indeed does dwell in us. Here are some diagnostic questions to consider. Do I rejoice that God is my safest refuge? Am I delighted that God is my supreme treasure? Do I exult in God, my sovereign Lord? And I do, do I rely on God, my trusted counselor? Finally, do I rejoice with David that all of this is only possible now and forever because Jesus perfectly fulfilled every part of Psalm 16, that we could have this unshakable hope and holy security, fullness of joy, and pleasure forevermore. Jesus is our source of hope that we, like David, will be preserved. Because Jesus Christ himself was, our, was preserved, death in the grave could not hold him.
Jesus conquered death for himself and for all who trust in him and belong to him, that we could have this unshakable hope that God will preserve us in Christ and death will have no dominion over us. Let's pray. Father God, we do call out to you to preserve us, Father. We come to you for refuge. Lord, hide us in the shadow of your wings, for you are our Lord. Father, we have no good apart from you. Help us to delight in the saints, your beloved, and turn away from false gods. Lord, you reign over all, and you have blessed us with love that we do not deserve in Christ. And so we bless you. We lean on your counsel. Let us meditate on your word day and night as we seek to always set you before us. Father, we thank you that we have true security and everlasting joy in your presence. We thank you for the hope that we have because you have shown your love for us in the Holy One, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.